Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Daryl Driver, Associate Professor in the Department of Military Strategy, Planning, and Operations at the U.S. Army War College. It's a pleasure to have you with us. I'm joined today by Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Menendez. He is a student in this year's Army War College resident course, uh, which only now is about three weeks from graduation. So congratulations, Manny. Uh, Manny and I will be discussing some recent research Manny has been doing on casualty evacuation in large-scale conventional conflict titled Uber Medevac, Leveraging Rideshare Principles and Technology to Save Lives in Combat. So it's a pretty uh, provocative and interesting title, so I look forward to digging into it with you. But before we get started, I wonder if you might tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Of course. So uh, Manny Menendez, born in San Juan, Puerto Rico, and raised in San Juan, Puerto Rico, uh, moved to the States as a teenager and joined the Army back in 1992 as a combat medic. So I have a longstanding interest in this particular subject. Uh, did Thomas enlisted, went to PA school, became a physician assistant, which is what I am now. And uh, yeah, it's been an interesting life uh, and career in the military, including at this point, nine deployments in both peacekeeping operations and combat operations with conventional and special operations. Wow. So it sounds like you are well positioned for this topic. So, so, so that leads me to my first question then. So I wonder for our listeners, if you might say a few words about the system that we have today, how we refined it over the course of 20 or so years in combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. So what does that casualty evacuation system look like? So a perfect system which, oh, from about 2013, 12, 11, maybe, because I kept refining until the day we left Afghanistan, we probably had the ideal medical system for a combat environment, which is from point of injury to the solution to a wound sort of in the chest or pelvis or abdomen, which is surgery. So from point of injury to surgery, you were never more than an hour away. And that was either because a small surgical team was nearby and they had a helicopter bring you back and forth, or you were near just a major hospital. And so Iraq, picture big hospital, there was a lot of them in place. And Afghanistan, just a lot of little hospitals with a medevac crew co-located, and they would just go out and pick people up and bring them back. So that's the ideal system, because in reality, there's just not enough systems out there. So what we've refined and we've improved over time and what the data tells us is that if you have a trauma casualty and you can get them to the surgical table as quickly as possible to fix non-compressible hemorrhage, which is, again, sort of everything inside of the box you can't put a tourniquet on, that you improve the mortality of those folks. And the outcome of all that was we pretty much knew if you made it to the OR table, 96% chance of survival, even with the kind of trauma that we were seeing in Iraq and Afghanistan. With all that said, though, even in that environment, we probably lost about 25% of people that could have been saved. So KIAs that were not labeled daughter wounds, they never made it to the hospital because the systems still weren't good enough. Like we weren't close enough. And if you had brought the time down just a little more, you would have saved more people. It takes more resources, take more supply, but, but all things equal, it's about as good a system as you could have had any world. And, and honestly, 
even if you were in the States and got hurt, the system in Afghanistan was better than that. Yeah, you, t you speak a little bit about the golden hour, but at one point we were actually well under that, right? We had gotten that good. Absolutely. And so, so in the medical world is uh, in the search for zero preventable fatalities. And that's a tall order. This is a study that the short version of it would say, um, how fast can I get you to the OR and still save you? Like to get to that definitive care. And the math sort of adds up to, if you have a penetrating wound, chest, belly, pelvis, so again, in the box. Or so, yep. To save 90% of those people, I have to have you in the OR table in 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. To save 50% of those people, I have to have you on the table by the hour. So in reality, the, the golden hour is saving about half of the people that we could save. And if we made the system a little bit faster, again, either we put surgeons further forward so you could just literally walk back and do surgery, or we have more faster evac assets, or the mitigating strategy, which is I add blood to the process because that buys us a little bit more time, then we would actually save more people. And ironically, my research paper started with that thought. It's like, I wonder if we could improve that process and save that 25% of potentially salvageable people that, that passed away and were labeled KIAs. And, and I wonder what, what, the, what would it cost? And then is, is it a feasible thing or affordable thing? And the reality is that as I did more research and you start looking into the LISCO problem and you look at the... So that's, so, that's interesting. So LISCO, for our listeners, large-scale combat operations. So this system, this elegant system that you've just described, Manny, that was for a particular kind of combat situation in a permissive environment, in a counterinsurgency situation. But the kinds of conflict we're seeing in Ukraine, for instance, today is large-scale, state-on-state, conventional combat operations on a scale that we haven't seen in, in decades, maybe Korea, World War II. So you're saying there's problems with the system, and not to give too much away, because I'll turn it back over to you in a second, but there's problems with this elegant system that we have in those kinds of combat environments. So I wonder if you just talk a little bit about those problems. Absolutely. So the system that we have was improve capabilities. So it's a better system. Once you make it to us, you know, it, it, you will get care. It, it's a lot of surgeons, a lot of resources. We will save your life at the expense of capacity. So as long as we were in Afghanistan, I could put a lot of surgeons. And so the ratio kind of works out to be one surgeon for every five to 800 people on a battlefield is, is sort of the, the rough math of that. Um, so if I have a four uh, surgeon team, I can take care of a BCT's worth of people more or less. And, and again, that's a very rough math of, of how it works out. We had more than that in Afghanistan. As a matter of fact, that math at some point might have added up to sort of 20 surgeons per BCT if you did the math. And part of that had to do with how spread out we were and whatnot. But the mitigator, or rather, it doesn't translate to large-scale combat operations because the volume is going to sort mm -hmm. of destroy the throughput capacity of that. So. so not enough surgical teams? Not enough surgical teams. And, and, and I'm trying to visual, try to describe it in a way that it's easy to see in the mind's eye. If you, if you picture from the point of injury, what we had in Afghanistan in essence was uh, incident would happen, IED, gunshot blast, et cetera. And that casualty would be treated on the spot by his buddies and by the medic and maybe by, by one of the providers at an aid station if they were far forward. A helicopter comes forward, picks them up and takes them directly to a surgical team. That helicopter was normally only taking one, two, three, maybe four people tops. But if you think of the resources, helicopter to the point of injury, 
where there was at a minimum one medic, probably more, and maybe a provider, plus everybody else that was helping with the system and all the medical supplies everybody's carrying and a helicopter picking you up and bringing you back to the surgical team. If you multiply the volume of casualties, just saying that company from one to 10, well, one helicopter no longer works. And wait a minute, I can shoot the chopper down. So I have to move the line back. Now I have to transport by ground to some point where I can have the, the bird come in. And as you complicate this, what you add is time. Time is of the essence. Matter of fact, time is everything in this thing. And so you go from, well, I wonder if I could save people. Well, I have to add more resources. I have to add more vehicles or or maybe I could bring the, the bird further forward. It won't happen because in this particular scenario, people are gonna get shot down. Wow, so we're in a conundrum. Okay, maybe I can bring the surgical teams further forward. Well, that won't work because the second you get one killed, they're all gonna move further back because that's, that's the key resource in this thing. I can't build a surgeon. It takes 18 years to build one. So so yeah, so I'm, I'm constrained to the bird, which was a solution to everything in the past. And if you take the bird away, I'm in a, I'm in a real pickle. So you got not enough surgical teams. You've got a contested evacuation environment now. Uh, and quite frankly, not enough platforms potentially for large-scale combat operations. In short, this thing, as good as it's become, is not scalable in the way that it would need to be for a large-scale combat operation. So we've teased this, things out, this thing out long enough. What's the solution in your mind? So the solution is, it, it, well, let me start with the conceptual idea is that for the unit to keep fighting, that's probably the best mitigation to more casualties. So if you take casualties, the thing that will prevent casualties is the unit has to keep fighting. And those casualties in the unit of action is gonna, they're gonna fall into one of three categories. Either the casualty is gonna pass away and it's gonna be obvious and people are gonna go, well, okay, that's okay, let's keep fighting. Or casualty is gonna be wounded, but in such a way that, hey, you know, I put the tourniquet on, the bleeding stop, I think we can keep going. Or the tricky group, which is where we lost 25% of potentially salvageable last time, is that in the box wound where time is of the essence, doing something now makes a huge difference. Getting you to the surgical team faster makes a huge difference. But if you took my helicopter away, I have very limited options as a commander. I either stop the fight, go into the defense. So I basically reach culmination, even though I still have ammo, I still have mobility so that we can save this one casualty, which in a sense is what we did in Afghanistan and Iraq. Every time something happened, we sort of reach culmination, pause the action, evac the casualty, regroup, reset, and then keep fighting. It won't work in Lisco because the enemy's gonna maneuver around you. So part of my idea is how do we keep the fight going? Well, there's things that are still coming back and forth. There's still fuel coming back and forth. There's still ammo coming back and forth. And once it be three days or so, there's probably food coming back and forth. In all those vehicles that are coming to the front and going back, generally speaking, in the way that the system is currently designed, are going back with nothing. And so my thought is, hey, if the goal of preventing casualties in that kind of environment is to maintain maneuverability, then the best thing we could do is move those casualties out. And oh, by the way, it benefits the casualty. And there's some studies that actually look at that specifically. Um, you know, the grab and go model is uh, ironically, this is a study with, with gangs and they were looking at, do, does that save lives? Like if somebody calls the phone number because a buddy got shot and the ambulance comes out, which takes time, and then they have to make sure the scene is secure and they grab the patient, they do treatment, and then they bring him to the hospital. Is that better than, oh my gosh, he got shot, I pick him up and I take him. And it turns out if, if you do the study on that, it's better if you just grab him and go. And so part of the thought is, hey, let's just grab him and go. 
but how do we coordinate? Because it can't just be free willy nilly, let's drive back. And so in my mind, uh, as we were discussing this, I was thinking if we just had a system that, that I just had an app and it one, helped me make the decision or may have helped the medic make the decision of, hey, this casualty is fine, we're gonna hold them or this casualty is not fine, this casualty needs to go. So this decision-making tool combined with something that could tell you where are their vehicles and where is there, is there an empty bed in a hospital nearby that they could go to. And I could think is, wow, that's it's actually called Uber, right? Um, you hit the Uber button and Uber, the system looks at the, the area and says, hey, here's a driver that's free. And in your location that you're going to, this driver has selected that location as the place that they were willing to go to. And so, cool, I'm gonna connect you to, and if you're okay with it, he's gonna come pick you up and then he's gonna go there for whatever he's gonna do there, whether you know, you can Uber as part of your day, I'm driving that way anyways, let me grab somebody, or I live in this area, so I wanna hang out in this area. And in the military sense, that could be, hey, my refuel or re-ammo depot is in this area. And historically, we tend to co-locate with those anyways. So if you're going that way, we could Uber connect casualty vehicle and just move them out of the way. And again, that's good for the casualty, even if there's no medical system in the vehicle. Right. Because it's just faster. And it's good for the unit because now the unit can move those casualties and just continue to move, continue to fight. So it's increasing capacity by connecting casualty evacuation to where we might find excess capacity in the system, right? And the reverse of what we did in the GWAD, which is then at the expense of capability. Because what we'd have to sacrifice is you know, we call it patient regulation when I know exactly where the patient is and where the patient's going and I'm trying to drive that. So I would give part of that up by putting in this sort of free system, maybe AI controlled. And problem two is that I'm taking a casualty that was treated by a medic and then put him in a vehicle where there's no medic. And that and that's sort of like an anti in army medicine. We don't want to do that. Once you have control and you've provided care, you don't want to give to lesser care. You want to give to more care so that the chances of survival are, are better. So there's a cultural change that may have to happen as well. Huge, huge. And, and, and it's funny because I think in my mind, being a medical person, although ironically, I've never actually been stationed in a hospital, I've always been on the line and, and you know, whether it's airborne or, or rangers or other special operations units. So I see it sort of from this, the two lenses. Um, the medical world is really concerned about, we have the patient, we have the ability to give excellent care and we want to save every life. But that requires putting all these pieces together and keeping them together. And then I see the operational side and, and I've experienced it in combat, which is, yes, the casualty is important, but the fight going on all around you is, is critical. I mean, that's the critical mass of the thing that's happening. I hate to say this because it's, it's almost anti-army medicine, right? But it's, it's not the casualty. It's the firefight that's actively going on at the moment and maintaining freedom of maneuver for the commander so he can ideally win the fight so we don't generate more casualties sh should, in Manny's opinion, be the goal. And then how do we then use the systems that currently exist that are moving in the battlefield to move those casualties out so they survive? Right. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of this, at least versions of this in, uh, or uh, I should say, uh, Ukraine today with a lot of civilians getting involved and in transporting people, even some volunteers from other countries coming in to do some of these duties uh, on the battlefield. Um, so when I read this, I thought, well, this is really interesting. You know, we have this kind of elegant system that's been s improved so much over 20 years, but it's not scalable because we haven't seen large-scale conventional operations in so long. 
But it, we do have a model for what that looked like, you know, and there was, you know, a, the U.S. invasion of Fortress Europe and large-scale conventional operations uh, from North Africa to Sicily to Italy, 1943 to 1945. How did we do it back then? What, did, what was the solution then and why isn't that, why wouldn't that work today? Oh, that's an excellent question. So uh, if we go back to World War II, a whole of nation effort really led to a whole of nation response. Um, everything from not just building more surgical and, and just hospital capability, but capability at mass, you know, at capacity. And that even included, they shortened the time that it would take for you to go through med school. So instead of going through in four years, they, they brought it down to two, two and a half years. That's actually the model that they built the physician assistant training model off of. So we actually still train off of that. So we built more to, to the number of, and I don't want to quote the exact amount of hospitals, but, but think a hundred plus field hospitals in the battlefield in something like 32,000 beds at any given moment that could accept patients and do surgery. Um, I went to the 50th anniversary of D-Day with the 212th MASH, formerly the 12th EVAC hospital. And there were people there that were in the 12th EVAC hospital when it landed in Normandy. Uh, and, and their description of this thing at volume would be, yeah, we had a road, it was about four kilometers long, and they would line up all the casualties and there would be a, a surgeon and a, uh, so the Jeep, a surgeon, driver, and a, and a guy just taking notes. And they would just walk and the surgeon would say, you know, urgent, priority, routine, this one's expectant. And as we were walking down, the, the scribe was just writing it down and putting it on the casualty and they would just grab them scoot everybody over, put in a group of people in the back. And so picture this was happening in mass all over the place. So we just had more volume. So the there was scale just was there. It was right. just there, yeah. it was huge. And so between there and, and World War, uh, rather Korea, uh, what we saw was we, we call it the Walker Dip, right? Is we won the war, everything's gonna be fine. There should be everlasting peace and there's nuclear bombs now, right? Nobody's gonna fight anymore. Um, and, and instead what we saw is we lost all that knowledge and got to Korea and sort of reinvented some of those some of those skill sets and knowledges. Uh, and then that was lost to some extent, but not completely. And we went into Vietnam. Vietnam is the advent of the helicopter. The helicopter becomes the tool of preference to move casualties. And that's really where, where you first see, hey, we can save a lot of people if we just move them a little faster. Um, the army of the 80s grew, professionalized, perfected the system. It, it was the best it could be. And then we went to the first Gulf War and there were, I don't know, 350, 380 actual trauma casualties. Uh, people don't talk too much about the 17,000 disease injury things that happened because you know people fell off their tanks or got burned or whatever. Um, but we just didn't use the system. And, and so it just became this, well, through the 90s, if we're a peacekeeping army that is gonna do small conflicts and we have to shrink, then, then we also don't need this medical system. And, and so by the time we get to the beginning of the global war on terror, we go from 1973, 74, 75, 100 major hospitals run by the DOD in the US to 10. And so just the capacity to train doctors and, and, and nurses and anesthesiologists and medics and PAs, all that shrank. Now the quality improved. So overall, we're a better group of folks and it's a better system, but it's just, wow, like a 10th the size that it used to be. And here we are today going back to large scale combat with a 10th of the size of the sort of medical force. Yeah, so it sounds like uh, this solution, uh, Uber Medivac, if I can use your title, <laughs> it, it's only gonna fix 
part of the problem potentially, and there's still going to be a scale problem. Absolutely. I'm, my thought is you're, you're shifting the choke point uh, because the choke point right now would be with the unit of maneuver, the unit of action. That's probably the worst place to have the choke point. It's probably better to have the choke point and not that it makes it much better, but at the first surgical unit or maybe at the second surgical unit, that's a better choke point because you can always flex from behind. And then as you move further rear in the lines, you should be able to move those casualties by air, but, but you shouldn't have them in the front. So yeah, so I'm totally proposing that, hey, our priority should be keep the unit fighting. The unit has to fight and we have to do our best to replenish the bodies in the unit. So again, so they can keep fighting. We're not gonna win the fight if we're not fighting. So is this simply a material solution then? You need some sort of app or some sort of device that networks all of these vehicles together, you know, Blue, For Blue Force Tracker, uh, down to the lowest person, or is there more that needs to be done to implement something like this? The quick answer, which as I was sort of thinking of this, it was what would be the thing that's feasible and inexpensive? Right, because as soon as you start adding cost, then you start adding legacy cost, then people get really nervous. And, and again, this is a thing that might be, it's not a problem today. We don't actually practice evacuating a thousand casualties on the battlefield. Um, as a matter of fact, there is no metal task for casualty response, right? There's metal task for engage a target or for ambush or for react for direct right. render at combat. Mission essential task. Absolutely. Yes. There is no mission essential task for a medical thing outside of medical units. So an infantry company or battalion doesn't have a task that says, hey, when you take a casualty, what is your response to that event? Do, do you maintain the tempo and go into the offense heavier or do you go into the defense and deal with those casualties? Or you know, what do you do? There is nothing, matter of fact, not completely true. There's one task in artillery battalions setting up the aid station, it's actually a task. That is the only task. And it doesn't matter what you do inside of it, by the way. As long as you set up the tent, you've met that task. But there is no other medical task, even though it's combat and you're gonna generate casualties. Right. So it's not just material, it's doctrine. There's some cultural artifacts we talked about earlier. So yeah, so with, with that thought, part of it was, okay, well, how do I develop an inexpensive solution that's hopefully easy to apply and that we could use a technology, whether it's AI driven or again, all Uber is doing is saying, where are people uh, available to move things and where are people in need of being moved? And so that could be Blue Force Tracker, which initially that's what I was thinking. It's like, I wonder if we could tie into that without sort of overwhelming the bandwidth. Uh, that would be one solution. Uh, or do you just go sort of SATCOM system so somebody would have to call in and somebody has a data transport or do you use AI? So the technical solution, I'm not the guy, but I right. will say what I was looking at is it has to be simple, proven, inexpensive. And it may be that that the Uber, Lyft, whatever, right? With the, the rideshare thing already has something that's built. And it wouldn't take too much to, funny, I thought Blue Force Tracker, to use something like that to say, hey, how do, how do we meld these two things? So we have something better than we currently have, which is if the chopper can't fly, you're in trouble. Here, I'll, I'll give you one more little sort of choke point. Um, we've spent so many years using the helicopter as the primary means of moving the casualties and studying what happens when we move people that we realized back in 2008 that uh, 
if I increase the level of training and knowledge and equipment for the medics in the helicopter from medic to paramedic, right? So I brought them so right. like nine months more training and I give them the equipment required, it actually improves the outcomes of the people. So like, like mind blowing that Congress said, hey, that's a thing. You will train all the air ambulance medics to the paramedic level. And we continued over rely. We did none of that for the ground ambulances. Matter of fact, if we try to fix the ground ambulance problem to bring them up to the same level, and if we only do it for half of the ambulances, that's a $500 million problem over eight years, plus legacy costs of maintaining all the drugs and equipment and maintenance and everything. So it's, it's like, yeah. Well, it sounds like, Manny, you're not done with this problem, and you are wrapping up the Army War College here, like I said at the beginning, in about three weeks. Uh, where are you headed off to? What are you going to do next? So I'll be the uh, incoming command surgeon for Special Operations Command North. Um, part of that job is actually going to be looking at Arctic warfare and Arctic, uh, the environment, which is uh, really interesting for the Puerto Rican kid. <laughs> so, so I'm actually in an Arctic class right now trying to learn uh, about the environment and, and just things that you don't think of about, hey, it's only really cold and frozen in the wintertime and the summer is just really boggy. Okay. Uh, things that you just don't picture. So, so that, that'll be the next job. And then obviously my name is in for the hat for, for whatever brigade, uh, medical brigade command I, I may be honored to serve in. So well, well, good luck to you because the Army needs people like you thinking about these problems, many of which we haven't thought about in decades. Uh, it, this is a very exciting, uh, I think, research paper, and thank you for allowing us to have this conversation today. Thank you, sir. And thanks to everyone for listening, and please tune in for future episodes of A Better Peace from the U.S. Army War College's War Room. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.